0: Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Good morning, everybody. Um... So good to be here with you guys today. If you have a Bible of some kind, digital or otherwise, Luke 7 36 is where we're going to camp out for a little while. Um, As you're turning and as you're getting your your Bible ready, I want to take a minute and just um, pray together um, quietly to ourselves. I'm going to offer just a moment of silence where we can um, ask God to prepare our hearts for what the Word has for us today and that we can be ready to experience what God has through this story. and just pray for those in here that are, that are struggling or maybe walked in here going through some sort of problem or emergency or crisis. Like people end up coming to church because of those things. So let's take a moment and just pray that what happens here today um, is, is life-giving and encouraging and life-changing. So let's take a minute and just pray those things. You know, God, it occurs to me that what we hear is silence in this room, but what you hear is a chorus of prayers going up. Um, I just pray that you hear and act on those prayers this morning and that all of us would receive something that we need. All of us would receive encouragement and strength and um, that you would overflow our cups today with what you have. In your name we pray. Amen. I grew up watching a lot of TV. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't really want to analyze that right now. You're not my therapist, but um, I did. And, you know, I grew up, my, my father was in the military, and so we moved to a lot of weird places. But one of the interesting things is in the military, when you are on base or wherever you are, you only get one real channel. Now, you can watch... The Italian daytime television, I don't recommend it, it gets weird, but what we watched was the Armed Forces Network. That's our television programming, the Armed Forces Network, the Stars and Stripes, where there's no commercials and a lot of weird stuff. Um, We didn't have commercials, I never really understood why, but so instead of commercials in between Family Matters and Step by Step, they'd play things like... PSAs, like, you know those the more you know where the star comes down and then a celebrity who's been court-ordered to do it tells you that drugs are bad. Um, and they know from experience, and so you get a lot of those. Or they, I learned a lot about Medal of Honor winners. They did a lot of these little short films, there's commercials in between shows where they teach you all about who won the Medal of Honor for this and that and all these things. So I have a lot of useless knowledge in my brain. And another reason I have a lot of useless knowledge is because I watched a lot of Friends. Friends was a big deal for me, both in high school and in college and currently, and every year since then. It really hasn't ever stopped being a big thing. I'm actually feeling pretty uh, cool these days because there's been this like resurgence where like all the young ones are now knowing. They know all about it. They watch it. They watch it on Netflix, and so it's, and I'm back to being cool again, which is nice. I missed it. Um, and so I watched a lot of Friends, and one of my favorite episodes, it is my, act- my wife's actual favorite episode, it's not mine, I love it, but it's not my favorite. My favorite's the one where they do the trivia contest to see who wins the apartment, you know what I'm talking about. Um, But this episode is called The One Where No One's Ready, and my wife loves it. It's really cool because they did it all in one room. They don't cut to any other scenes. It's just one room, and Ross is mad at everybody because they're not getting dressed, and he needs to go to this thing. And my favorite part of the episode is where Joey and Chandler are arguing about who's supposed to be sitting in a chair. It's this big, beautiful, comfy chair with these huge, you know, luxurious cushions. And Chandler went to the bathroom and came back, and Joey stole his chair. Uh, And they have this argument about who's supposed to be sitting in the chair. And Joey keeps making, like, defending his chair rights and yada, yada, yada. Um, And so, finally, uh, Joey's like, fine, I'll get up. And he gets up from the chair, and he takes the cushions with him. And he walks away. And Chandler does, you know, it's a very Chandler thing. He does this thing where he's like... The Chandler walk. It's, you would be laughing if you'd seen it, and, and also if I were funnier. Uh, so Chandler does that thing, and he's like, what are you doing? You can't take the... He's like, I, I'll give you the chair, but I'm taking the cushions. And Chandler's like, the cushions are the essence of the chair. And Joey's like, that's right. I'm taking the essence. It's a great, great bit. And I, re- I would love to tell you that the first time I saw that, I thought to myself, I'm going to use that in a sermon someday. <laughs> I feel it. There's a connection there. But I didn't. Uh, but no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to loop back to that. And when I do, it's going to blow your minds, people, all right? Just get ready. I'm going to build that tension so good, you're going to be crying. Um, no, so today we are looking at this story of a woman being forgiven and reacting the way that she does. It's this story about Jesus being asked to dinner by a Pharisee. Um, we need to do a little context uh, work before we get to this scene. We need to know what Jesus has been doing, what he's known for, where is he in the Jesus story, because it's very relevant and important. Um, Jesus is pretty much at the height of his fame around Judea at this point in the story. Uh, it's Luke 7, so he's done a lot of things. He's got his disciples. He's done the Sermon on the Mount. He's gotten pretty famous. He's known for a lot of things. One of them is there, he's known for having his... His, his word possessed authority. That's a word, it's a phrase that was thrown about, about Jesus a lot. People are saying this. He's someone who possesses authority when he speaks. He has power over demons. This doesn't, this sounds like a weird thing to us, to them. That's like the biggest deal ever because no one knew what to do about these demons that were constantly inhabiting people's bodies. It was a real problem. And Jesus all of a sudden can just tell them to leave. And that started to spread. And not only does he tell the demons to leave, sometimes when they come out, they'll say, hey, you're the son of God. It's the son of God. And he has to shut them up. Like he has to, it's not your job to tell people that. Be quiet. So not only does he kick demons out, but they, they respond to him and say things about him. He's known for this. That's something that would have been told around the world. He's a great teacher and a great healer. He's constantly going into towns and bringing the sick to them and he heals them and he's teaching them at the same time. He's known for this. Um, and even though he was in prison, John the Baptist had even kind of heard and were, was very curious now, like, what's been going on? And he's got his people telling him, and he's, he knows about it. Everybody's kind of aware. Um, but maybe the biggest thing that he'd done up to this point, and he just did this uh, in, in the story. So this is in chapter 7, verse 11. This is one of my favorite Jesus stories, one of my favorite things he's ever done. Um, so he and his disciples are walking into a town called Nain, and there's a funeral procession coming out of the town. So there's a family, and there's a, there's a man, a young man, it seems, who had died. And they're carrying him out of the city to bury him. And Jesus is walking in as they're walking out. And for some reason at this moment, Jesus just, he just can't help himself. He's, he's struck with this feeling of, I can't allow this sadness to walk past me. I can't allow this to just happen when I have the power to fix it. In this moment, he just says no. And he walks up to the funeral procession and stops them. And he reaches up and he does something you're not supposed to do. He does something that would have made everybody angry and uncomfortable that was there. He reached up and he touches the, the coffin, the box that they were holding. And you're not supposed to do that. You're not allowed to touch it, but he touches it. And he, te- and he says, young man. I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. The sad procession was walking out, and Jesus stopped them and turned that sadness into joy, not just joy, but joy that required action says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus is famous for a lot of things. One of those is raising the dead. That's, that's a pretty good job. He's also known... As someone who contends with the Pharisees. He's known as someone who sticks up, stands up for himself and sticks up for the others who the Pharisees are constantly bullying. He's known as one of those. He's known uh, by the Pharisees as one who speaks blasphemies. He forgives sins and he's not supposed to do that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He, they, they ask him questions like, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you do these things? Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They had a real problem with him doing anything on the Sabbath. Whether it's walking through a field and picking grain, that's too much. Or healing people or fixing things that was not allowed. And they were very annoyed by it to the point that they even, last, in the chapter before this in 6.11, they said, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Because he is just not following the rules. So this is how Jesus is known. He's known for doing great things, for teaching really wonderful things, new things that they hadn't heard before, and the Pharisees just don't like him. And this is where we find ourselves. Here's where we begin our story in Luke seven 36. I'm going to kind of move through the first part of this without reading all the verses, but as you hear me teach, you can kind of look through and see where we're at. There's a Pharisee named Simon, and he's invited Jesus to eat a meal with him in his home. Now, this is not to be confused with Simon Peter or Simon the Zealot or Simon the Tanner. Simon, there's really too many Simons. I really think this is why Jesus one day was just like, you know what, Simon, you're Peter. I'm done with this Simon thing. Way too many Simons on this planet right now. You're Peter now. All right? That's just the way it is. Uh, So this is Simon the Pharisee. And he's invited him to his home, and something we need to know about these kind of get-togethers is they were kind of public events. They weren't like, let's go in the house, close the door, shut the windows, and we're just going to be alone. No, no, there were open courts, and the tables were visible to the people in the town. And a lot of times, uninvited guests would just sort of come and observe and stand and sit and watch. And even sometimes they would engage in the conversation. And, of course, the way that they sat at these tables was real weird. They, they sort of reclined on like, a, on, like, a couch and had their feet up, and they would, like, put one arm on the table and then eat with the other arm. I don't know why they didn't just sit in a chair. It seems so much more practical, but whatever. They're weirdos. Um, so we've got a lot of men just sort of laying at a table, eating food, and their feet are out, and they don't have their shoes on because everybody took their shoes off. And that's sort of the scene that we see. Um, and so while they are eating... While they're eating dinner, a woman whose name we don't know, a woman shows up and her very identity is that of a sinner. She's known as a woman who was a sinner. That's how she was referred to. A woman who was a sinner shows up and approaches Jesus and just begins to weep and cry and use that to wash Jesus's feet, rub it with her hair, and she takes this very expensive alabaster ointment and breaks it open and Starts pouring it all over Jesus' feet. And this is where we pick up in verse 38. It says this. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who... And what sort of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So, Simon saw this, and he whispered to himself, this ain't right. No prophet would do this. No prophet would allow this woman who is a sinner to come and touch him, let alone even talk to him. Clearly, this man is not who I thought he was. Let's let's lean in a little bit on Simon to kind of understand this reaction a little bit. Simon's reaction reveals a good deal about who he was and his reasons for asking Jesus to the party. We can see clearly that he did not invite Jesus to this party as some sort of social equal that he wanted to just get to know. He invited Jesus to test him. He invited Jesus as a curiosity. What is the deal with this guy? Who is this guy really? Is he really as great and wise as he says he is? Is he really a great prophet? I need to figure this out. And so he invites him to this party where everybody can see. It's a win for him because he's seen with this really famous guy. And he gets to find out if he's better than him or not. And so he decides, this lady's touching him. All right, well, he's not what I thought. He invited him as a curiosity. He did not offer him the typical hospitalities that one offers a guest. We see this here in a second when Jesus basically accuses him of this. He did not anoint his head with oil. He didn't give him oil for his head. He didn't allow him water to wash his feet. He did not give him these things. He just invited him as a curiosity. Now, I typically don't side with Pharisees in the stories. It doesn't usually go well for me. But I do have to say, I kind of get it. Kind of get it. Jesus is a celebrity. He's a big deal. And Simon wants to maybe cash in on some of that. And he wants to figure this guy out. He wants to test and see if this is real. I think sometimes maybe like if I if I could have like a celebrity over for dinner. Like let's say I invited my uh, very good friend Jerry Seinfeld over for dinner. All right. Um, you know, we go way back. And if I invite him over for dinner, I'm probably going to forget to do a couple of the things I would normally do, offer him a drink, show him where the restroom is when we wash up. I'd probably just sit him down and really quickly start what I wanted to figure out. Is he really as funny in real life as he is on TV? Is he really as funny? You know, I'd, I'd do things like, I'd, I'd maybe bring out like a leather jacket and just lay it on the, on the table and get it wet a little bit because this is one of his classic bits where he's like, why does water ruin leather? Aren't cows outside a lot of the time? When it rains, do cows run up to the farmer, hey we where, where's all leather out here? We're getting wet. Do they do that? No. That's one of his classic bits. So I'd bring like a leather jacket and get it wet and just wait, like it's wet. It's probably gonna get ruined. Or I'd put like chopsticks on the table. One of my favorite Jerry Seinfeld bits. It's a little offensive, but I'm not being that way. He'll say things like, You know what I love about Chinese people? They're just hanging in there with the chopsticks. They've seen the fork. They're sticking with the chopsticks. I love that bit. So I would lay out some chopsticks. I'd give them to him and just see is he going to do it? Or I'd serve him like airline food, just see what happens. This is what I would probably do. So I almost kind of get it. I almost kind of get it that he's just checking in on this guy to see if he really is what everybody says he is. He'd heard all about this and he just had to figure out is this real? We also see from this what Simon expects from a prophet. How should prophets behave? Simon believes that a prophet would be one that would never allow an unclean sinner woman to come in and touch him. He probably assumed that if that happened, Jesus would say something like, "Sweetie, I, I appreciate it. Please don't touch me. Please stop cleaning my feet. This is inappropriate. This is not allowed. Here's what you do. Okay, I, I'm I'm special, and you're not. And you need to go to the the temple." And do all the appropriate sacrifices. Here's a pamphlet that you can use. It'll show you all the things you need to do. Here's the certain animals that you can buy. And if you can't afford them, here's the the substitutes. You know, I'd love to help you. Can we meet up tomorrow? I'll walk you through all this. As long as you don't touch me, we should be fine. That's, it seems like that's what Simon would have expected Jesus, this great prophet, to do. Is to very politely sort of push the woman away. Stop this from happening. First, this woman should clean up her act because it's communicable, I guess. That's the thing, is they added on top of the law. The law said if you are physically ill, if you have certain illnesses, you need to stay away and not touch people. You need to go out of the camp and deal with it, and then you can come back. And that wasn't because... They're gross and they're evil. It's because you could get other people sick, so you need to kind of separate yourselves. And the Pharisees took it a step further and said, well, obviously he also means that if you're unclean spiritually, you shouldn't touch people. If you're unclean spiritually, you can't be around the righteous. That's just not the way it it is. And they added on top of the law and made it more harsh and more strict. So much like um, many of the issues, Simon was adding on to the law. And Jesus hears Simon and he answers him, starting in verse 40. He says, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And he goes into this parable. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So he gives them this story. There's a man who owes 500 days of skilled labor worth of money. That's what a denarii is. One day's worth of skilled labor. Now, skilled labor is not picking up one rock and moving it to another pile. Skilled labor is like fixing things that we don't know how to fix. Maybe coming into someone's home and fixing things. Now, I just recently paid a guy like $180 to fix a lot of things in my house for a day. And so we'll go with that as like a standard of a day's wage for skilled labor. So that means that the man canceled a debt of $92,500 in our money. He just canceled it. And the other guy had a debt of $9,200. So these are the two debts that this man cancels. And he asks, Simon, which of these loves the money lender more? And he gives him the obvious answer because it wasn't really a question of the one who he canceled the larger debt, I suppose. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right, he did. And then he goes on. He says, do you see this woman? He doesn't say, there's this woman here. He doesn't say, you obviously see this woman. He makes sure that he asks the question. Do you see this woman? Do you see her? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Simon, you treated me like a spectacle. Something to be witnessed, observed, and tested. This woman who you did not invite, whom you believe to be less than, treated me with extravagant gratitude and love. Not only did she offer me water to clean my feet, but she used her tears and wiped them with her hair. Not only did she greet me with a kiss, but she has not stopped kissing that, which many would say is maybe the grossest part of me. She not only anointed me with oil, but she anointed me with something so expensive and extravagant that it's irresponsible and foolish. She expressed gratitude and love because she could not help herself. In a a New Testament commentary, a guy, William Hendrickson, says this about Simon. Simon is the typical Pharisee, absolutely sure of what the law demands of him, and completely incapable of discerning that there are circumstances when the law of love, love your neighbor as yourself, transcends the minutiae of prescribed ordinances and regulations, so he attributes Jesus' failure to denounce the woman for what she is as a defect in his spiritual insight. He assumes that because Jesus does not do what he would have done that he's defective, he's wrong, this is not real. Because he believed that what the law demands of him is far more important than what love demands of him. Because, see, here's the thing we need to understand is that this woman, she did not come to receive forgiveness. She had already been forgiven, and this was her expression of gratitude and love because of that forgiveness. Hendrickson goes on, he says, The important point of the parable of the two debtors is that the woman's action does not earn forgiveness for her, it is rather the spontaneous devotion of one who is conscious of being forgiven already. Remission of great debt. Produces great love, and not vice versa. If she had shown up that night to receive love and forgiveness, Simon would have got on board with that. He would have been like, "All right, come over here, honey. I'm the one with the connections at the temple. He's just a celebrity. He's not the one you need to talk. I'm the one with the power to help you get those pesky sins forgiven. Let's get let's get to work. Let's figure out what all your problems are, and I'll give you all the right animals to go and fix the problem. That's what Simon would have done. But Jesus is it's not the deal. She's already been forgiven." He's not proclaiming her forgiveness now. It's already happened. He is reminding her of her forgiveness. And this woman, the urge within her to express gratitude to Jesus was so irresistible that nothing could stop her from doing what she had to do. Now listen to this one. This is, this is, a, this is a big one. This is one we need to walk away with. To the level that you understand your own brokenness and frailty your own personal need for grace and mercy that is your capacity to love others the less you understand your own need for grace the less likely you are to give it to others this woman was acutely aware of her sinfulness and her brokenness and her need for forgiveness simon was not simon was not and so you know some of us may be thinking that's that's not fair I've never done anything really bad. I'm not a, I've, I've never really had a huge problem with anything. I've never had this big, massive sin to forgive. I don't have much to be forgiven, so does that mean that I can't love God that much? No, that's not the point. It's not about whoever has the worst life before Christ is the one that's going to love him the best. That's not the point Jesus is making. What Jesus is making is saying, all of us are the one that owed the 500. All of us owe a, sin, owe a, a debt that we can't pay. And none of them are more or less. All of them are the same. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Not the wages of many sins is death. Not the wages of a certain amount, a kind of sin is death. The wages of sin, all of it is death. We all owe a debt that we can't pay, that we have no check to cash, that we have no savings to hold on to. We have nothing that can cover what we've done. And Jesus says, I know. I'll forgive it. I know. I'll fix it. Here, take my life. Because see, the, the, this moneylender doesn't. It hurts. It's a problem. Like he, he's not going to get that money back. But he'll move on. Like, but Jesus doesn't just forgive the debt. He sacrifices his very life so that those sins can be forgiven. He gives up every single thing that he has, not because his daddy told him to, not because it was written in the law, not because people prophesied about it. It was because of his extravagant, unconditional, unstoppable, reckless, foolish, irresponsible love for us. That he had to do that. He could not stop himself. He could not continue to watch the funeral procession move in. He had to stop and turn it around and turn it into something amazing and beautiful and life-giving. We all owe a debt of death, and God has paid all of those debts. See, Simon, the tragic thing about Simon, the thing that kind of breaks my heart about Simon is he knew all the things about God, far more than this nameless woman will ever know memorized large portions of scripture. You can't be a pharisee without that stuff locked in your brain. It's just the way it is. He spent his whole life studying and devoting himself to understanding God and gaining more knowledge and gaining more understanding, but none of it turned into what it's supposed to. See, all of that dedication and devotion and understanding, it's meant to produce something and that something is the essence of the gospel. In the essence of the gospel, what Simon didn't get, but this woman clearly did, the essence of the gospel is just love. It's not anything really complicated, it's not some great theological point, it's just love. It's just love. Simon believed it was his great works and his devotion and his strict adherence to the law that saved him and that made him worthy of God's love. And this woman understood that nothing makes her worthy and she can't believe that she still gets that love. So she had to do something extravagant. At the end of this story in verses 48 to 50, Jesus is is just done talking to the people. He wants to zero in on this woman. Verse 48, he says, And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Yada, yada. Jesus doesn't care. He, see, he keeps focusing on this woman. He looks her in the eye and says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He reassures her that her sins are forgiven. And that her faith based in love is what saved her, not the outpouring of love because of her faith. Because you see, if it, was, if it was the action that created the salvation, if it was the action that gave her the forgiveness, then we've missed a lot of things because that would mean that in order for us to receive salvation and forgiveness, we have to go do something extravagant and outlandish to Jesus in order to receive it. And that's not the faith that I know. That's not the Christ that I know. That's not what the scripture says. Those great things that we do are an outpouring of love and gratitude because of what Jesus has done in us. It's not go and make yourself right, go and accomplish something great, and then you can wear the label of Christian. It's accept God's mark of his name on you and then watch what he does through you. You see, if love really is the essence of the gospel, then we need to figure out what to do with this love because here's the difference between us and this woman. This woman had Jesus right in front of her. This woman had the man, Christ himself, the Savior, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, right in front of her, and she had to do this to him. But we don't have that. He's not waiting for us in the lobby for a reception after this. He's not there. Spiritually, he's everywhere. We get that. But physically, I can't go and clean his feet. I can't go and wipe his feet with my tears. My hair is not long enough anyway. I can't do it. But what did Jesus leave us? See, the essence of the gospel is not just love vertically. The essence of the gospel is love horizontally. Loving the world around us, our neighbor. See, this woman exemplifies it. She had a sorrow in her heart knowing that she was broken that led to repentance. Clearly, she heard Jesus speak somewhere or heard somebody talking about Jesus speaking. It affected her and it changed her and she recognized her need for repentance. And so she did. She accepted that repentance and she gave up that life. And that Acceptance and understanding led to a gratitude that she didn't know what to do with. Just was welling up of joy and love. And she realized that her life has been changed. She became so grateful to Jesus that that led to an action. She went home and she saw that alabaster jar. God knows where she got it, how she had it. That's an expensive thing. That's a year's wages worth of perfume there. I don't know why she had it. Maybe she didn't even know why she had it. Maybe it was a gift that she just put up on a shelf and didn't know what to do with. And people have probably told her, sweetie, you need to sell that thing and use the money to buy yourself something new or just to pay the bills. Use that thing to do something good. She just let it sit there. Didn't know what it was for until this day. Finally, she feels this change and realizes, I got to get that thing. I got to go break that thing and pour it all over this man who's changed my life. We don't have Jesus in front of us. We can't do that. But here's what Jesus says to do in Matthew 25. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And he finishes by saying this. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me we don't have Jesus' physical body, so we can't do these things. What we have is our neighbor, is our coworkers, our family, the people we go to school with, the people we see every day. We have them. And if all we do is use our love and devotion and just, and this may sound weird and it's probably a scary thing to say from a pulpit type place, but if all you do is, is just spend your love on God himself and that's all you do, is you just pray great things to God and you give to the church and that's a wonderful thing, please do it. Um, If you just spend it that way, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. I use this analogy with the students all the time. I have this neighbor kid that lives near us and he's really good friends with my my kids and he's nice to me. But if all of a sudden that, that affection just became centered on me and he ignored my children, he didn't hang out with them anymore, maybe he even said bad things about them, and all he did was spend his time with me. I would not want to hang out with that kid ever again. If you treat my children less than what I think they're worth, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to know you. And it's why Jesus says things like later on, he says, you came to me. You said, I, I've prophesied. I've done all these great things. I've healed in your name. But Jesus said, yeah, but you didn't know me. And they're like, of course, but he's like, no, you didn't clothe me when I was... Naked, you didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't visit me when I was sick. And they're like, well, what do you mean? We never saw you when you were sick. We never noticed this. He said, yeah, but those that you didn't see, that was me. We have people around us, the whole world, the people sitting next to you, your family, everyone. We can be washing their feet. We can spend those alabaster jars on them. We can love extravagantly that in such a way that confuses them this is what God has offered us in replacement of himself, is if I'm leaving, love the world. You see, the cushions really are the essence of the chair. And love really is the essence of the gospel. And if I take a big, beautiful, comfy chair and I strip the cushions out and I sit in it, it's always going to feel empty. Faith without love is like a chair without cushions. You can sit in it, but what's the point? Let me pray. God, you're good and you're wonderful and you love us in such a way that is frankly embarrassing. God, I can never do for you what you've done for me. I can never repay what you've given me. So God, help me to repay it by passing it out to the world around me. God, if I can't give you back what I owe, let me and help me and push me and give me the strength to take that and pass it around to the world around me, to love people extravagantly, recklessly as you've loved me. God, help me to be like this woman and not like Simon. God, help me to be more like this woman who knows her brokenness and her frailty. Give me that awareness. Give me that that knowledge of who I really am that I might devote myself to you and the worlds and the people in my life. I ask this in your name. Amen.